Sabrina Brando, and today I'm delighted to welcome Lori Bruin, who is a leading scholar in animal studies and feminist philosophies. She is the author and editor of a lot of different books and articles and book chapters that we, and some of them we will be discussing today. And she has written on a range of topics in practical ethics, feminist philosophy, and political philosophy. Her current projects include exploring captivity and the ethical and political questions raised by carceral logic. Welcome, Laurie. Hi, Sabrina. It's nice to be here. Very much looking forward. You and I have met a few times and talked about animals and animals in human care or in captivity. We will be discussing some of these topics and also around language today. And we always like to start with a short story, like an early story of you perhaps connecting with animals. So perhaps you could start with that. Yes, um, it's actually a somewhat sad story, but I think it's it's a story that might explain my ongoing interest in um, trying to make our relationships with other animals better. Um, when I was a child, I was very interested in um, animals um, and often what would happen is that I would rescue a, a cat or maybe rescue a dog when I was a child. Um, but my parents would move and we would leave the dog or cat behind. Um, and this was heartbreaking for me. And I, I, I only in my later years realized that that could have been very formative because I was often um, cut off from my relationships with animals that I had um, been involved with. And I think it probably informed my ongoing concern about animal ethics and making our relationships with animals better and more sustaining. Yes. And before we dive into different topics, can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, the difference between philosophy and ethics? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, so um, I'm, I'm, when I was in college, I was really interested in thinking um, about philosophy. I took a number of philosophy classes and philosophy is a very broad field. Um, what we do in philosophy is, is sort of really question everything. Um, and I ended up in an ethics class as an undergraduate in which we studied animal ethics. Um, and this was quite a long time ago. And I really had no idea that there was an area um, in philosophy where people were concerned about animals. Um, so that was really the start. Now, ethics within philosophy is designed to have us thinking about how to behave, um, how to justify our actions, ultimately, how to make arguments um, based on both reason and I would say also emotion to justify the kinds of practices that we engage in. And animal ethics in particular is a field that's grown considerably over the last number of decades. And animal ethics really does look at 
um, how we should be thinking about um, the lives and experiences of other animals and how our actions impact the lives and experiences of other animals. Um, my own work in animal ethics is focused um, not just on the individual actions that people take, but on structures and systems and relationships more broadly. Yes, and when you say animal ethics, can you dive a little bit deeper and talk to us about different uh, stances, if you like, and approaches and ethics? Good, thanks. So yes, many people think that when you're talking about animal ethics, it's a particular thing like don't eat animals. Um, certainly that is one um, version of animal ethics, um, but animal ethics really does um, map onto the other kinds of ethical theories that we uh, often draw on when we're thinking about conflicts between humans. So um, very famous philosopher, Peter Singer is a utilitarian philosopher. He's interested in thinking about what kinds of actions will lead to the best consequences for all those who are affected by actions. There are other philosophers who do work in ethics that's primarily rights-based. Um, and these are often people who want to argue that um, humans and other animals have inviolable rights that shouldn't be um, interfered with. And what they mean when they talk about that is that they have Per, that other animals or other humans have a right to bodily integrity, for example, have a right to have their interest attended to, um, have a right not to be harmed. So when, um, when animal rights ethicists are talking about animal rights, they're not talking about like the right to vote or the right to, um, you know, free speech or anything like that. They're talking about moral rights. Then there's a whole area um, in ethics that I'm a part of, which is what gets called the ethics of care. And the ethics of care is concerned fundamentally with how it is that we are sort of seeing our relationships, what we might owe other um, beings, whether they're human beings or animals, in terms of um, our attention, our focus, our commitments. Um, and so there's a variety of different, I guess I'm, there's, a, there's uh, a variety of different ways of formulating animal ethics that, that in some ways parallels um, the variety of theories that um, scholars and philosophers have been developing for 2000 years um, in ethics more broadly. Thank you, thank you. So we'll make sure with this podcast, there will be some links so you can explore animal ethics um, in a bit more detail, if you like, and of course also look at the research gate and other links related to, to Laurie's work. And can you tell us a little bit more about the ethics of care? Yeah, so um, the ethics of care, um, actually, if I can just take a little deep dive into the history here, I'll try to be brief. Um, in the 1960s and 1970s, there were some moral psychologists at Harvard University um, in Massachusetts, um, one in particular who was interested in how, um, more, how in humans develop their moral sensibilities and what the highest level of um, moral development might be. 
And this was uh, Lawrence Kohlberg. And what he did was he did an empirical study with young boys, presented them with ethical dilemmas, and asked them to answer questions about what's the right way to do, what's the right thing to do in these dilemmas. And then he determined that there were different stages um, of moral development going from trying to avoid punishment, that's the, the lowest stage, to being able to reflect on one's decisions and deciding whether one really wants to endorse that decision, whether that it con it's conforms with one's sense of oneself and one's conscience as an ethical being. So this was um, a view that gets, tends to get associated with an, what gets called the ethics of justice, but it's really actually a very old view um, that falls into what I was saying earlier about the rights view or um, the philosopher Immanuel Kant. Um, he was someone that um, also thought that the highest level of moral engagement was being in a position to um, endorse a particular policy or course of action um, and endorse it not just for oneself, but for everyone who was in the similar situation. So quote unquote, universalize it. Now that's, that particular body of work, um, which was focused on young boys and their develop, their ethical development, um, was challenged by Kohlberg's graduate student, um, a woman named Carol Gilligan. And Carol Gilligan um, was concerned about a variety of problems with the methods of her teacher and decided to do um, to look more carefully at what girls do when they're developing. And so this, what she found is that actually there's a difference. Um, that, and she wrote a book called In a Different Voice, um, in which she noticed that there's much more going on in the development of moral sensibilities. Um, and in particular, um, she noticed that when we look at girls and actually boys as well, um, there's some data that suggested to her that relationships and attending to those relationships and making sure that individuals in relationships are cared for um, are, is an important part of development. So what she thought is in the early stages of moral development, you care about yourself. Then you go through a transition where you start to care about others and you lose your care for yourself. So you kind of invert it. You, first, you only care about yourself and you do things that are good for you. Then you invert it and you care about others, but you forget about yourself. There's a sort of self-sacrificing moment. And then the highest stage for her of moral development or the highest level of moral development is when there's a caring relationship where there's both self-care and care for others. Now, unfortunately, so this is in the 1970s, okay? So this is how an ethics of care got started. And unfortunately, it was fairly essentialized in the early days. So so boys do it one way and girls do it another way. Thankfully, over time, care theorists have recognized that that binary itself is troubling and that actually there's not, there's just a, a over focus um, in the case of an ethics of justice um, that needs to be embedded within an ethics of care. So I've presented this as a distinction between an ethics of care and an ethics of justice. And that's how ethics of care emerged. But over the last several decades, um, care theorists like myself see justice as just as important as care, but the two can be blended together. In traditional ethical work, 
um, emotions and sentiment and care tend to be undervalued, but they're a very important part of um, how we can make our relationships better. If we're not paying attention to the particular, let's, let's just use animals as an example. If we're not paying attention to the particular animals that are um, in our care, for example, um, and we're operating with abstraction based on abstract principles, we may not actually be bringing about ethical consequences or respecting their ethical rights, if you will. Um, and so care is a really important tool for engaging and practicing ethics. Um, and I work in what is now called uh, the feminist care tradition in animal ethics and have developed a theory of empathy um, that I call entangled empathy, that's part of a way of attuning to the particularity of others that we're in relationships with, both direct relationships or indirect relationships, relationships that are near and relationships that are far. Yes, I look forward to hearing more about uh, your book, Entangled Empathy, in a little bit. And so what I'm hearing is, and and yeah, let me know what you what you think, or if I'm understanding this correctly. You mentioned how you know it's about individuals, but it's also about structures or systems. And so this the ethics of care and, and the relationships, like systems, are the relationships that happen between the actors of that system, right? So that's that's right. Yep. Yeah. So you're you're really looking at you know, how, who are the actors in a particular system or a particular structure and how, you know, is there a relationship? Is it a just relationship? Is it a symbiotic relationship, uh, you know, in whatever way that's meaningful for the individuals? Is that how we, how I can understand it? Yeah, that's real. That's right. And also I think it's important. Another part of that is that these structures or systems can impact the interests and concerns and needs that we develop as well. And they can, this, these structures and systems, depending on what we're talking about, can also block um, flourishing or block the possibility of care. Um, and also can kind of shape um, what we're able to see and not see um, about our relationships. So it's important to both pay attention to the particular individuals um, and actors, as you put it, within um, our relationships, but also to pay attention to the structures that might shape how it is that the actors come to understand themselves and their needs and interests. Yes, and that is, of course, you know, complicated by, if specifically if we're talking about animals, is that, you know, they often don't have um, a voice, like, of course, many other people don't have, but they also don't necessarily are always seen as actors within a certain organization or structure or system. And so have, can you talk a little bit to that? How, how do we bring, you know, the voices of others to the surface? That's a really yeah, that's a really important question. And I think there's a couple of ways of thinking about it. I mean, and you're, you're someone who knows this very well. Um, but one thing is that um, when, you, when you're engaging with um, those that, let's say, aren't able to directly inform you about their needs or interests, and that can be non-linguistic beings like other animals, um, or it could be beings that aren't we're not in direct communication with. And I'm thinking of, you know, in cases of um, 
let's say, a global um, climate change with extreme weather events, there may be some people in parts of the world that are suffering from, um, you know, let's say a tsunami or an earthquake or fires. We're not in conversation with them about what they need. So what we, what we can do in this situation is draw on um, a wealth of information that's available to us. Um, one thing, if we are in a direct relationship with another um, non-linguistic being like another animal, is that we can learn a lot from people who understand those individual um, members of a species, particularly those who spend a lot of time um, because even when we understand that what often is called species typical behavior, there's great variation among individuals within species. Um, and for example, you know, within a chimpanzee group, um, there's chimpanzees that are dominant, there's chimpanzees that are submissive, um, and there's chimpanzees that have very different personalities. So to generalize about what the chimpanzees might need in the abstract without knowing the individuals is going to potentially be problematic. And so looking to those individuals who work with these, these particular um, chimpanzees will be helpful in trying to figure out what their needs are. Of course, there are general needs that need to be met and understanding species typical behaviors, whether that's human species, typical behaviors and needs, or other animal species, typical behaviors and needs is important. We need to know those sorts of things. Um, but we also want to be more att attuned to the particular concerns of individuals. Um, and so both of those things are going to require all of us to refine our perceptual um, skills and hone our attunement so that we can dis determine whether or not an individual um, animal or an individual human might find a particular um, action pleasurable, painful, frightening, worrisome, disorienting, um, and that sort of thing. And as I say, we all should be developing our sensibilities and attunement and our perceptual capacities. But those who are directly engaged with those individuals also have important um, understandings that they can share. So I guess I'm saying all this by way of trying to point out that it's not just somebody telling you what they want, what they need, what their interests are, um, that are, is gonna be the base for ethical engagement. A lot of times we're confused about what we want, what our needs are and what our interests are, or we might change our minds or we can change our minds. So just being able to hear what another person says isn't the end of the ethical story. There's much more reflection, much more attunement, much more um, empathy that's required. Yes, and this really you know, brings me to thinking of people who care for animals day to day, wherever they are, right? Whether people in sanctuaries or wildlife centers, zoos, aquariums, you know, animals at home, farms, wherever they might be. And, and to the writing, and I have, you know, used some of your work, uh, especially from your book, Entangled Empathy, um, where you really talk about, you know, how do we empathetically respond to the needs and the interests and desires, vulnerabilities of animals. And uh, so perhaps this is a, a good moment uh, to talk a little bit more about entangled empathy in your book. Yeah, so the theory of entangled empathy that I tried to develop, first and foremost is, as I, as I mentioned, 
it is um, how I understand uh, an ethic of care. Um, and what is central in the theory is not that I'm trying, like a utilitarian might try, to produce the best consequences for the most individuals that are affected by an action. That's what a utilitarian might want to do. And it's also not a view that says, well, let's respect the rights of these animals or the rights of um, you know, these elephants or what, whoever it might be that we're paying attention to. But rather, um, what we ought to be doing is thinking about how to determine what is going to make the most sense for um, the um, animals and people that we're in relationship with and how to make that relationship better. So I define entangled empathy. I'm going to just read it because I think it's, um, it's a clear way to put it is that it's a type of caring perception that's focused on attending to another's experience of well-being. It's an experiential process involving a blend of emotion and cognition in which we recognize that we are in relationships with others and are called upon to be both responsive and responsible in these relationships by attending to another's needs, interests, desires, vulnerabilities, hopes, and sensibilities. So the idea of entanglement that's a part of the empathy part here is to recognize that we're in all sorts of relationships. We're in relationships to all sorts of others. We're in economic relationships. We're in proximate relationships. We're in relationships when we engage in, let's say, um, planting a garden, plant what we're in in relationships when we're eating food, we're in relationships when we're buying products, all of these kinds of relationships that we're in have ethical implications. And this goes beyond just the ethical um, relationships we're in directly with animals that are, let's say, in sanctuaries, wildlife, um, refuges, zoos, aquariums, so, or in our homes, right? So, um, those are all relationships and they're complicated relationships and they bring out different kinds of um, ethical concerns. The empathy part of entangled empathy is, is not the kind of empathy that we see and talk about when we're actually thinking about um, a kind of other animals who might be reacting uh, to the distress of another immediately around. I don't think of empathy as an emotional contagion um, or anything that's just reactive or emotional, but it's actually a, a, a empathy is a process of working to try to understand, um, as I said, the needs and sensitivities and desires and hopes of another being to help them to be, um, to help them to flourish and to help promote flourishing more broadly. And so empathy requires what I um, argue in the book, um, a back and forth. So uh, I would make, I will react first with empathetic concern, but then I have to check out what the other individual um, is doing, what they need, what their life history is, what they're up against. Um, and then I might change what my initial reaction was. Um, I then check it against them and back and forth in a process of reflection that involves both thinking and feeling, 
um, a process that involves heightening my attunement and perceptual capacities so that I can be um, in a position to understand the other. Now, I want to say clearly that entangled empathy does not involve or even strive for complete understanding of the other. Um, it's about trying to get a good sense of what the other might be interested in, what might be harmful or frightening, what might be um, exciting or engaging or enriching. Um, and these are the important kinds of um, issues to be attuned to in developing um, entangled and practicing entangled empathy. Yes, and the word empathy, you actually, and the, and the process of it, so both the awareness, the feeling, and, and of course the actions that follow from it, you have used that also in other relationships in your writing. So you have uh, an essay that is about attending to nature, uh, empathetic engagement with the more than human world. So you, there you talk about engaged empathy towards nature and perhaps, you know, we're obviously coming back to animals, but can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, attending to the earth, attending to nature? Thank you. Yes. And, and actually, this is this is a topic that I wrote my dissertation on. Um, what what's, are their values in nature? How to understand um, our ethical relationship with the more than human world beyond just other animals? Um, and it's an important and hard question. Um, I do think that we have a tremendous responsibility um, to attend ethically to the planet. Um, the planet currently is on fire and um, we're, in, we're in deep trouble if we don't take serious action and quickly um, to try to mitigate some of the um, destruction that we are causing. And I mean that both in terms of climate change, but also in terms of the habitat destruction um, that's happening due to our consumption and extraction um, industries. And I say our, I mean the, the global extraction um, industries. So we are doing tremendous damage to the earth, but in environmental ethics, which is a, another area of ethics, um, and as I said, I did my dissertation in, in that area, um, there's, a, there's a set of questions that are often asked about whether nature has intrinsic value itself beyond its usefulness to humans. And I've argued that that's kind of the wrong question to be asking. Um, because the usefulness of the planet is not mere instrumental. Um, we won't exist and other animals won't exist if the planet isn't healthy. So we can think again, to go back to my, my relational sort of orientation, we're in important relationships with the more than human world, with the natural world, with the planet that's our home. And the home to so many, all of us require um, that our home is healthy. And so it's not just that we need it. It's not just that we reduce it to an instrument for use. Um, I think that if you imagine all sorts of theories that are concerned about habitat or even just sort of belonging to your place, um, this is a, a symbiotic relationship that involves um, care for the natural world 
And it doesn't have to be that you care for the natural world because the natural world has a value independent of you. Um, this again is one of the the things that in my own work I'm trying to combat that framework, which which pits one thing against the other um, as a false dualism, as a false binary. We're in these complicated relationships, and we can make our relationship to the planet and the earth better by attending to the important ways in which we need more trees. We need trees for, um, you know, for all sorts of reasons and birds need trees and other animals need trees. So when we're engaged in deforestation and here I'm saying we, I don't, I don't mean you and me, I mean, or any of your listeners, I mean, so when companies are sort of clear cutting forests or cutting down um, native um lands in Indonesia, for example, to build palm oil plantations, that this is going to harm not just um, the local people who are there, not just the orangutans and other animals that call that forest their home, but really all of us in various ways. So these are the kinds of issues that I'm interested in thinking about, both in terms of the natural world and in terms of other animals. Now, having said all that, I do come into a, a a problem um, because, and many people have pointed this out to me, people ask me, well, can you empathize? Can you engage in entangled empathy with the wetlands um, or the forest or the mountains um, or the meadows? And that is a place where I'm, I'm stuck in a certain way um, because in order to empathize, there has to be another who has a perspective. And that perspective um, is, is necessary um, so that you could understand and take that perspective. And what part of what I'm, um, I argue um, in entangled empathy is that it's not clear to me that the natural world has a perspective that we can take. Although many of the beings that require and need the natural world um, to continue to exist um, do have a perspective. So, you know, the marshland that I live near, um, the fish and the birds um, and the insects require that habitat. And so I can empathize with those that have a perspective in order to value the habitat, even if I'm not empathizing directly with that natural area. Yes, no, absolutely. And it makes me think about, you know, when you said, you know, when we're cutting down the trees and then maybe not you and me, but still, you know, this you mentioned, you know, bringing empathy, becoming aware of and thinking more deeply about and then of course in what way so maybe I buy less books because I want to you know not contribute to so many trees being cut down for the paper of books but then I'll you read them on my kindle but we know that you know using the internet and being digital also is massive energy consumption right and and this is why there are some like Ecosia and some other search engines that plant trees as you serve the web, right? But I think you you really bring forth, you know, when we engage in thinking and feeling and paying more attention to it, then it also allows us to adjust our actions and to make decisions 
uh, that can be more in symbiosis, if you like, with, with others that we are in relationship with, including the planet that we share. So I think uh, I think it's been very helpful to to think along those lines, at least for me. So thank you for that. And I, I think, yes, I think I just want to say that I think thank you. You you just summed that up really well, and it shows that this is I'm not this isn't an easy um, no, ethical no. engagement, but really trying to be attuned to sort of what kinds of um, impacts we're having through our actions on our relationships with each other, with other animals, and with the rest of the planet. Yes, no, no, absolutely. I think so. You have. Um, the book Ecofeminism and Feminist Intersection with Other Animals in the Earth. You've talked about climate change. Can you talk a little bit about uh, that particular book and what it uh, tried to do when we're thinking about, um, you know, us and an other animals on the earth and, and perhaps food justice or other topics, facing death, practicing grief? There's, there's a lot in that book. Yes, yes. Um, so the book is... Um... The book is a book that I co-edited um, in 2014 with um, Carol Adams, who's a longtime feminist animal advocate. And um, we just redid the book um, for a, a second edition and added a whole section on climate. And it's a section on climate that addresses both climate change, as we've been talking about a little bit here, but also the climate of reception for ecofeminist ideas. So to go back to the very beginning of what I was talking about with the ethics of justice and an ethics of care, um, let me tie that together in an ecofeminist frame, because what ecofeminism is fundamentally concerned with is recognizing that there are these structures um, that exist that have made a binary or hierarchical distinctions between um, usually um, white men and then the rest of the world, right? So these, this is sort of the great chain of being, if you think about it that way, where there's a picture of a white God who's at the top of the hierarchy and then white men who are in God's image. This comes from the Bible. And then um, Eve is made from the rib of Adam, right? And then uh, unfortunately, historically, we see that other races are lower down compared to animals that are lower down still. The plants and the things are even lower down. That hierarchical structure, which sure, it comes from uh, you know, Judeo-Christian religious beliefs, but it also informs all sorts of other things, even if you're not following those religious ideologies, um, is really at cause the cause of so much injustice and so much suffering. And eco-feminists want to identify the ways in which um, all sorts of beings and all sorts of human beings are left out of the picture or undervalued in this hierarchical frame. So remember at the beginning, I was talking about justice and care as being as binary. Well, ecofeminists want to say that the binary and the hierarchy that I just described are going to contribute to the ongoing unethical 
relations that exist in the world. And so what ecofeminist tries to do is challenge those dualisms, challenge that hierarchy, and suggest that what we need is a very fundamental rethinking of our relationships with one another. Um, and so there's a lot of ways in which ecofeminist sensibilities come into play. Um, one of them, I think, fundamentally, is about recognizing these power relations and the way these power relationships distort our engagement and undermine our ability to flourish and the ability of um, other animals to flourish. And ultimately, it's the domination or dominance or dominion over the earth that has led us to um, so many earthly problems at the moment that we were just discussing. So ecofeminism, some people criticize it. They think, oh, it's trying to take on too many problems, social problems, environmental problems, problems with other animals. But fundamentally, that's what it's doing. It's ecofeminism is trying to get um, us to rethink our, all of our relations. Yes, because all of our relations are shaped by certain kinds of um, problematic ideologies um, that I think um, have led to the current crisis that we're in. Yes, yes, I was nodding along and, and thinking about, you know, when you've mentioned binary and hierarchies a, a few times and, and very much, of course, like when we're talking about relationships in one way or another, they are as they are messy, but they're, and they're beautiful and they're, and there's so many different things, right? So it's, uh, whether it's, if you look at social connections, there's, you know, obviously we might have some favorites and some, you know, are stronger than others, but there's, there's this whole, you know, map, that whole connection, every, everything is connected. So, and, and it makes it hard to think, you know, in, in straight lines or just, you know, zeros and ones or, what have you. So um, yeah, I think it's that sort of web of all these ways that we are connected. And that's exactly. Yeah. So yeah. exactly. It's not easy to navigate the web, but I think it's much better to think about um, these issues precisely as a web and, you know, in, in an ecological sense. Right. So there's even ecological science that can support this notion of a web like interdependent relationships. And that, it seems to me, is a much better starting point for thinking about ethical action and ethical um, attitudes than hierarchies or binaries or dualisms. Yes. And, and it's also that, you know, just because, you know, it's complex and it's difficult and there's too many things, it doesn't mean that therefore it's not the, the right way to, you know, the, the, the path probably and, you know, to go just because it's hard and there's too many variables that we, you know, very much in certain ways of conducting, especially in science, we try to, you know, remove as many as we can and to make it nice and clean. But um, yeah, and, and that makes it complex, but still, you know, if, if we are not, and you mentioned, you know, your attention and attunement to, and especially also to the invisibles, whether they are peoples or animals or places in the world. Um, so yeah, so it is, and, and I, I now have to think about, you know, one of the words in one of the titles is madness. Uh, you have animal ladies, gender animals and madness. Um, and, you know, maybe you could talk a little bit about that word. Obviously, madness is not related to this, but just because right. it is, 
you know, complex and it's it's difficult and then we don't have answers and we don't necessarily know how to navigate it. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. And so perhaps you can elaborate a little bit more on your work there. Yes. Yeah, so um, that what you mentioned, uh, this is a really exciting collaboration with an Australian uh, cultural theorist, Fiona proben Rapsi. Um, back in 2016, she put on uh, a conference, which she called either animal ladies or animalities. Um, both of those words are in the term, animalities or animal ladies. And what she coined the term to highlight the ways in which um, both concern for animals has been historically feminized. So the idea is that um, women are the ones that end up caring about animals. And this gets into this idea of care versus justice, reason versus emotion, those problematic dualisms that I've been mentioning. But also there's a problem that when you care about animals, there's something pathological or um, there's a malady there. And that's what um, people have suggested over time that there's kind of an over-sentimentality or a quote-unquote madness that's a part of people um, who care about animals. And, you know, it's really interesting because even though um, there are so many different types of people who care about animals and so many different um, theorists who have been increasingly interested in exploring historically through literature, through science, um, through philosophy, through anthropology, through sociology, all of the fields have been exploring sort of human-animal relations for the last at least two decades, if not much longer. Um, there still seems to be a way that certain individuals of a, let's call it old school variety, can just dismiss people who are interested in animal. I'm sure you've experienced this directly dismiss people who are interested in animal well-being or animal flourishing as a little mad, a little nuts, a little sort of out of the mainstream. And it's remarkable to me how much of a hold this view has on people. Um, I think it's changing, but it's amazing how slowly it's changing. And I think part of the reason it has such a hold is because it's pretty easy to ignore somebody who you might think is mad, right? Um, and so this is part of a struggle. I think that those of us who are trying to develop new ways of thinking about our relationships with other animals in the more than human world, it's a struggle we're up against, the ideology of um, those who think, no, these are just things that we get to control as humans, um, a certain kind of human arrogance or human uh, supremacy and um, the way that it, it allows itself to continue is by accusations of um, diminished capacity in those of us who care about other animals. Yes, no, I, I think everybody working with animals probably have heard some phrases along the lines of, well, you know, they're just animals. They're or, just animals, you know, it's, right? It's just the, you know, and, uh, and I think, you know, it points very much to what you've been mentioning several times, this kind of hierarchy, you know, the dominion over. And, um, and yeah, I think in a way, and, and this, is, this is also not only true for 
other animals, but it's also true for other, if you like, peoples or, um, yes. you know, groups of people that have, like, why do we still have to raise, you know, um, the importance of skin color or why do we have to still raise the importance of, you know, freedom over who you want to be and who you want to love. So, yeah, I think, and, and absolutely, it is it's fundamental to keep, you know, raising and putting spotlights on those and, uh, and speaking out against that this is not uh, a malady or madness, but it is, it, it is fundamental. So, right, yeah. right, yes. exactly. And I think that's really core to the work. I mean, one of the core features of all of the work that I'm interested in and all of the work that I've been doing is the ways in which these... Um, normative um, ideological frameworks or structures that put a certain way of being above other ways of being and then justify um, practices that diminish, marginalize, or enact violence against those that aren't at the top of the hierarchy. Um, that has led to all manner of injustice and all manner of suffering um, in an ongoing way. And so challenging that structure is really core to the, to the work that I do. Um, and that, of course, includes animals, um, but it includes um, fighting against anti-Black racism, against all sorts of prejudice around gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgendered individuals, prejudice against people who are indigenous. Um, and I think this is a really important um, important area of connection. Um, there's a problem that happens within um, animal concerns where people make sort of facile or easy comparisons between these forms of domination and oppression. And I'm not doing that. I think it's really important to recognize that though this hierarchical structure or ideology um, absolutely puts certain individuals, white cisgendered men, um, straight men at the top of the hierarchy, um, this doesn't mean that everybody else is at the same um, in the same situation. Obviously, entangled empathy in part is about recognizing and appreciating difference, not trying to make everybody the same, either the same in the sense of, oh, well, this chimpanzee is so smart, they're just like my three-year-old child. Okay, that's, that's a problem. But also saying that, oh, well, animals are treated just as badly as incarcerated people. No, that's also a problem. There's very important differences. And if we conflate um, these differences were um, in some ways replicating um, the dualistic and hierarchical way of thinking. Yes, thank you. Can you uh, go a little bit deeper into, you know, you, you a lot of your work revolves around uh, captivity, whether that is animals or peoples. And so can you talk a little bit more about that, please? Yeah. Um, so I... Um, I started being concerned about captivity um, as I started working with chimpanzees um, about 20, almost 20 years ago, about 20 years ago. And so um, I started to realize um, that there was something 
um, from a philosophical point of view that I wanted to reflect on about the potential harms of captivity, um, even though there weren't, it wasn't direct harms. Um, and the ethical theories, as I talked about at the beginning, um, tend to be much more focused on direct harms. And um, I was much more interested in thinking about what what exactly um, is being denied to animals um, that are in captivity if they don't know? People often say, well, they don't know any different. They've always, let's say they've been born in captivity, um, so they don't know any different and, and they're not aware of themselves as in captivity. I mean, on the one hand, I think that's probably not true for a lot of animals. I think they do know they're in captivity, but hold that aside for a second. Um, I think that there's still something um, problematic about denying animals um, their uh, ability to take care of their own basic needs. So when I started thinking about captivity and the harms of captivity, I started theorizing it a little bit differently, where what was really happening is... Yes, you know, maybe they are denied their autonomy. Um, then there's a question about, well, are they aware of the denial of their autonomy? And if they're not denied their, if they're not aware of the denial of autonomy, then that's not really a harm. But I want to suggest that not being able to satisfy your own basic needs the, and not being able to express yourself in the full range of ways that you do. I think birds or parrots are a really great example here. Parrots, um, Really, I mean, one of the things that parrots do is fly. They they really, that's part of who they are. They fly. And so when they're in captivity and denied this very fund, fundamental capacity to fly, even if they're treated wonderfully, even if they're um, all their well-being is cared for, if they're not able to fly, there's something about their dignity, what I call their wild dignity, that's being really fundamentally denied. They don't have to be aware of that in order for that to be a kind of wrong that's happening. So anyway, this got me interested in thinking about captivity in a different way. I don't, um, I don't, obviously, I don't think that you can just let um, chimpanzees that are in captivity in out free them. That's not the, not the response to captivity that I'm interested in thinking about. I'm actually interested in thinking differently about perhaps there's ways of creating sanctuary that is still captivity. I'm not denying that, but that we can provide for the highest level of captive conditions. Um, and so um, anyway, this is that I could go on for more and you can ask more questions about the captivity. Then um, around 12 years ago, or maybe longer, yeah, probably longer. I, I started teaching um, in prisons. And so uh, I teach philosophy in both uh, men's prisons and women's prisons. And I started thinking about human um, captivity as well. And in part, in relation to this um, question that we were just talking about in terms of hierarchy and anti-Black racism and a kind of denial of a certain um, way of understanding um, how our structures have led to uh, a certain amount of distortion and destruction, um, I've started to think about what I call carceral logics. And these carceral logics are a type of logic of domination 
um, that fits within the frame. So some are, um, some individuals are, um, it's right or we're justified in holding some captive for various reasons. And so I started analyzing this. And then most recently, um, so I, I edited a volume on the ethics of captivity um, that also came out in uh, 2014. And um, in that volume, I, I encouraged um, experts in particular, both animals um, and humans to talk about the, the particular animals, dogs, uh, chickens, chimpanzees, um, human captives, and to talk about sort of what some of the issues that arise for captive animals and captive humans might be. And then the second half of the volume discusses the theoretical and ethical concerns about captivity, both with prisons and with zoos and with sanctuaries and other forms of captivity. And then most recently, um, I've just finished co-editing another volume with a law professor at the University of Denver, Justin Marceau, um, in which we're looking at a very specific problem. Um, and that is this problem that, um, again, is a subject of carceral logics, where some animal advocates are arguing, this is kind of a little bit complicated, but some animal advocates and animal lawyers are arguing that we should put humans in prison who are who harm animals, so who are cruel to animals. Um, and so it's, it's a really interesting puzzle because um, the system that we have in place again, not thinking beyond the system, is causing some who are opposed to animal captivity to increase or participate in the ongoing captivity of humans. Um, and we're trying to theorize and break out of that cycle. And so that book will be coming out with Cambridge University Press in May. Yes, already looking forward to reading that one as well. And uh, yeah, I was wondering, you know, we've talked about captivity, we've talked about human care, we have like, there's a different language around that. And you and I have had several conversations around this. Um, also about, you know, zoos and sanctuaries and how are they similar, how are they different. And so perhaps can you um, elaborate a little bit around, you know, your thoughts around language and, and words and, um, and different structures? Yes, thank you for asking that question, because it's, I, it's really been a very important um, issue in my thinking lately. Um, so we could just take zoos, I think, as, an, as a good example. Um, there is a concern amongst the many members of the zoo community to not think of the animals in captivity, but rather to talk about them, as you said, as in human care. Um, and I really do wonder what's at issue, and maybe you have some thoughts about this I'd love to hear, but it seems to me that there is something that is um, in perpetuating a kind of human dominance in talking about animals in human care. Um, it's somewhat parentalistic or paternalistic. It feels um, somewhat also like a euphemism. Um, and it's not clear that um, it, it's not clear to me, I guess I should just say that, it's not clear to me 
what the resistance to talking about captivity is. Um, captivity itself is, as I said, um, I understand captivity as being enclosed and not being able to provide for your basic needs. That's what zoo animals experience, but to some extent, that's what sanctuary animals experience too. So it's just an awareness of the conditions that the animals are in. And for a lot of um, zoos, at least increasingly, there's a concern and interest in rescuing animals that are in need. Um, so this idea of rescue is also, um, I think, an important one. And often when you bring animals into captivity, um, that's, that can be how you rescue them. So I, I guess for me, it's, it's a little bit um, interesting that the word captivity um, has become uh, foreboding, like people don't like to use it. I know when I first started working in the ethics of captivity, um, when I talked about dogs and cats, our companion animals being in our captive, there, there are captives, people are like, what? Like, wait, they are. They, we, we tell them when they can go out. We tell them what to eat. We tell them when to eat. They, they don't have full freedom. They're captives. So I think that um, there's a sense in which um, part of the resistance to using the language of captivity, um, for me, the worry is that then we're not really thinking through the hard questions, the ethical questions that our, our relationships to captive animals raise. So I think it's by avoiding the word captivity, we're also avoiding the important questions that we need to ask. There's other ways in which, in the I guess, in the zoo world too, we have um, language that is similarly concerning. Um, I think the idea of having a collection of animals is is on the um, on the way, and that is people are not using that as often. But we still talk about the people who are doing the um, captive care work as keepers, so they're called keepers. And when you talk about keepers, you're actually very clearly talking about individuals that are holding animals captive. Um, so anyway, I think the language question is a really important one. Um, and it's worth reflecting on. Um, I had a really interesting conversation um, with someone in the far farm, farmed animal, formerly farmed animal sanctuary world recently about um, the idea of calling rooster flocks, bachelor flocks. And I've always had this concern in the zoo world about bachelor groups. Um, and what that means essentially is, is just a group of, of all male animals. But the idea that, that the bachelor is a part of that is, is building in a normative structure that's suggesting that somehow um, opposite sex pairing is the primary relationship. So when it's not there, then you have a bachelor group. Or I think about the old way, the old days of calling um, gorillas in, in zoos. Um, they're either in a bachelor group or they have their quote unquote harems. And I think all of this is about the kind of anthropocentric lens that we put on other animals. And if you look at the science dating back 40 years, you know, sexual selection was understood through a very particular lens 
sexual selection of animals in the wild when it was mostly men doing um, the observational research. And as soon as women, ethologists, primatologists, and others started observing um, wild animal behaviors, they were able to see very different kinds of things. And so these structures, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting that men see things one way and women see things another way. That's that old idea from back with Kohlberg and Gilligan, but um, that there's a certain way in which our social structures train us to see certain things and not see other things. And language reinforces the limitations of what is conceptually available to us when we're exploring the interests and behaviors um, and relationships of other animals. So language is kind of key in trying to understand both our relationships to them and how we understand their relationships with each other. Yes, absolutely. And I think uh, for me, so I've always been comfortable using both the word captivity, I, I, I'd say on the human care, it really also depends who I'm talking to, where I am, you know, the important part for me is always to keep the dialogue open to create environments where we can discuss anything and everything. And sometimes that means starting on animals in human care to then have a discussion or a conversation on what it means to be in captivity. So obviously, um, and then of course, also really talking about what is it that, how are sanctuaries different from, from zoos and uh, and in ways, in what ways are zoos, modern zoos today, sanctuaries to animals that come from the wildlife trade, from, you know, in un, unsuitable pet keeping, and, and in what ways can we learn from each other? And, and I, as, as you were talking about agency, autonomy, um, I think modern zoos, aquariums, sanctuaries, you know, facilities where in systems where animals are, are housed, kept uh, today, they they try to focus uh, on in what ways can we, you know, promote the autonomy, the agency of the animal as much as possible and support that, you know, through choices and control and through, you know, collaborative interactions and, you know, in their care. So kind of looking at gradations rather than it, it is there or it isn't, right? Right, um, right, right. Yeah, and, right. and really looking at, you know, what are the needs of, of a species and then what are the preferences and needs of individuals, you know, like you mentioned, their personalities and so on. And I think, of course, a lot of the pressure, if you like, or the resistance against certain ways of um, interacting with other animals has, I think, made that different organizations, different um, communities have started to use different words. Um, and, and so, because of course it makes it, uh, like you say, euphemism, it makes it a little less harsh, if you like. But of course, ultimately when people say, oh, can we get the animals out of the zoo, you know, out of captivity and put them in a sanctuary, you know, like you rightly say so, I mean, they're still in captivity. But uh, right. perhaps the way that we attend to their needs and attune to their preferences is different. And, uh, and that's probably, in, and for this, I think it's really important that we look at uh, each and every individual organization and see in what ways are they doing this and embodying this. So, uh, and how are they then different that way rather in the name that they might have? Because you and I have been to sanctuaries that are not great 
and they've been to sanctuaries that are wonderful and the same for zoos and and um and 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 I have never worked in prisons, but I know a little bit that there's massive differences also in the way that um you know people are are in prison. Yeah. So yeah. I think those are those are things that at least from my perspectives in working in this field in this community uh, are important. And to me, language has always been really uh, important and interesting to think about and in what ways does you know how we the words that we use and the way that we speak about animals uh, or about anything else help shape our actions help us think um and and you know do in what is in the best interest i think that's right i mean i think that is that is um important and i think that um the words that we use can allow for um, can either open conversations or closed conversations. I think that's a really important point that you make. I also want to just say a few things about zoos and sanctuaries. Um, and um, you and I have talked about this before, but I do think it's it's really important, um, especially now as um, so many um, young people who are looking at their futures in ways that are very different than you and I did. Um, their futures don't look open in the way that ours did um, with the climate crisis bearing down on them. Um, and increasingly I have found, um, you know, across the globe, there are young people that are demanding more from adults, right? Um, and the idea is that they really want to see a very major shift from the status quo. They're not gonna accept things as they are. And I think that sanctuaries and zoos have a really important or potentially really important role to play in helping um, us to rethink our relationships with the more than natural, more than human world. So that the idea is that um, if it were possible for, and I'm thinking now about wildlife sanctuaries, not other kinds of sanctuaries, um, that if it were possible to imagine zoos and san sanctuaries are usually, wildlife sanctuaries usually have just a couple of species, if that, often they're just one species. So um, range country sanctuaries, as you are well aware, you know, are usually just, there's either a bonobo sanctuary and there's only bonobos there, or there's, you know, um, an elephant preserve or there's a, a, a a uh, uh, baboon sort of area, which might be multiple species of baboons, but it is um, still sort of the similar kinds of animals. But what we have in zoos is increasingly, I've noticed that um, across the globe, having more animals, more different animals in the zoo is at least for a number of years, that was the goal. And I wonder if that goal should be reevaluated re um, and whether it might make sense for zoos to think of themselves more as sanctuaries. I'm not saying only for one or two um, species, but, but you know, maybe there's a way in which some zoos in colder climates, we've talked about this, shouldn't have animals that are native to tropical areas. Um, or um, you know, maybe there can be regional sort of zoos that are more about the local animals um, and that they can also be sites of rescue. That would be one way that zoos could become more like sanctuaries. Um, and also, I think there are some animals um, that it's, it, there's very 
profound questions about whether they should be in zoo settings like elephants um, or in the case of aquariums, um, cetacean, who both of those animals are long-lived animals that travel very long distances as part of their natural life. Um, and there's really no way that zoos can provide that, but whereas sanctuaries have been able to do that. Also, maybe some birds, like I was saying, parrots, unless there's a sort of a massive aviary, um, it might not be the right thing to have parrots in um, cold climates in captivity, that, that it might just be impossible um, for uh, some animals to be in some climates in captive conditions and to be able to flourish. And I think these are the kinds of questions that I think are really important for um, both zoos and sanctuaries to be thinking about. There are, for example, in this country, there are chimpanzee sanctuaries in places that get really cold. Um, is that a good place for that sanctuary? I don't, you know, I think these are hard questions. Um, I'm not suggesting that we need to shut them down. That's not what I'm suggesting. But I do think these are really important questions that need to be answered. And given the fact that, you know, there's a new generation coming up that, as I said, isn't interested in the status quo, isn't interested in us just doing what we've always done. Um, there's a way of modeling sort of how are we going to adapt and zoos, I think, and some sanctuaries can be at the front of those conversations rather than being reactive. Um, that's just a thought I have. I don't know what you think of that. Yes, no, absolutely. I think it is important to, it's easy to kind of throw up the barricades and, and say, well, you know, um, elephants and, you know, dolphins and polar bears, they, you know, they roam large areas, depending on obviously what dolphin you are and the way that you're coastal species, but all those details, but, you know, there's a purpose for it and that's to find food and because we feed the animals, there's no need for them to migrate or move around a lot. And, but they are, they are going at different sorts of questions. And I think, you know, we need to keep all kinds of conversations open and not just the one that revolves around, um, you know, animal well-being. Is this the, you know, like Dr. Jake Vesey has proposed that, you know, probably the best well-being for an animal is in a big space, but it's still kind of, you know, controlled in the sense or managed in the sense that, you know, for disease and predator and, you know, if you're really looking at the individual's experience, but, they, but what you're talking about is much more, uh, is a much broader uh, perspective and a much broader view of who these other animals are and what sorts of lives uh, they could be living. Um, and so I think that it's very good to keep that conversation uh, open and ask these difficult questions to which we may or may not have uh, questions. And I think uh, some years ago, and I can't remember the, the name of this professor now, I'm sorry about that, but uh, you probably know him. Um, but he, he gave a talk at a conference in the Netherlands about uh, decolonizing the zoo. And, um, and, and he was also pointing to all kinds of questions of hierarchy and our relationship to other animals. And um, yeah, there's so much to say about it and we could do another podcast and, and we are coming to the end of this one. But I certainly, I think the most important part is for me and, and sometimes this is why some people do not necessarily know where I am in this community because I, I like to speak to all kinds of peoples and 
all kinds of perspectives. And so, uh, including the ones that may feel like threatening to some. So, um, yeah, let's let's keep that conversation and dialogue open. And um, yes, so I was uh, we were going to uh, talk a little bit also about your uh, work of documenting the history of the first hundred chimpanzees in research, and then this website that is uh, evolving on the last thousands. But what I'll do is I'll add some some links to those um, important projects with this podcast because. One of the, uh, we have a few minutes left, and one of the things that I would love to hear from you is, so we, there's a lot of awareness bringing and a lot of thinking and feeling about our relationships to other animals and peoples and nature. And in what ways do you suggest can people be actors for change? Uh, that, uh, in what ways can they, they embody that? Yeah, well, I think um, one of the things as we've talked about throughout this hour or so is that, um, you know, recognizing, really reflecting, I guess is the idea, reflecting on what kinds of web of relations we're in is really the first step. And developing and feeling comfortable about um, extending care wherever that's possible um, is, I think, a really important um, thing to be doing. And as I was saying uh, just a little minute ago, that, you know, the, we are facing some pretty significant crises and pretending that we're, that things can go on as they have gone on um, is, I think, um, naive. We can't do it the way we've been doing it. So I think, as you've been saying, talking to other people encouraging other people to be more mindful, to pay more attention. I mean, sadly, I'm saying this in the context of the United States, which has become an extremely polarized country in just a, ver a very short time. So there's something a little bit naive of my on my own about saying, oh, why don't we just have more conversations and talk a little bit more? But I do think fundamentally, um, having a sense of your own agency and responsibility and being responsive to the web of relations one's in is really key. Um, if we don't start changing our behaviors um, in very significant ways, um, changing the food system, which the, you know, the International Climate Committee's um, talking about, we really need to change how we eat. Um, we need to change all sorts of things about how we, how we travel, how we commute. Um, there's really desperate needs. And as, um, as the crisis and the, the climate crisis sort of bears down on us, it's not just us and the future humans that um, are going to face this crisis. As we know, there's all sorts of animals um, that are also in jeopardy and their being in jeopardy furthers our own um, potential problems. And so I just think it's really essential um, that individuals start to recognize their connections and make significant changes um, in their behavior, um, not just about other animals, towards other animals and our uh, relationships with other animals, but about how we use the resources of the earth. Yes, absolutely. And we just spoke about words and how words, you know, can be so meaningful. And one of the words that I often come back to is this, the word activist. And I know that the word activist has 
uh, now often, you know, especially also I think in, in zoo and aquarium community, activists are seen as the ones that are, you know, not necessarily in favor of zoos and aquariums, for example. And, um, but I always, you know, and now I'm taking a much broader stance. I actually think the word activist, you know, is something that really pertains to everybody. And, uh, you know, so whether you are listening now and you're an animal care person or you're a veterinarian, you're a student, whoever you are, that in the end, you know, an activist, somebody who takes action, somebody who wants to make a difference, right? And we can all be activists for greater good. So what is it that you can do in, so talking about language, you know, activists are, is everybody. I'm an activist, you're an activist, we're all activists for certain things that we feel are important. And here we're talking about other animals and people and, and this beautiful planet that we share. So what is it that, that you could do in your bubble of influence? And so, yeah, thanks so much for sharing your, your perspective on that, Laurie. And, yeah. and um, you know, I think it's always really, you know, you, you started with a story and it was a, a, a kind of a sad story, but it's also a deep story in the sense of, you know, our connection to animals and, you know, rescuing animals. But stories are really what makes everything come alive, right? That's how hearts are changed and things happen. And in at the end of this podcast, could you share a memorable story? Whatever, yes. Whichever one you'd like. That would be wonderful. Well, um, there's... Uh, th there's a group of chimpanzees that um, I, I have been um, very close to that I started working with in um, a cognition lab that then were moved around and now are in sanctuary in Louisiana in Chimphaven. And one of those chimpanzees, Emma, is somebody who I write about in my book, Entangled Empathy. Um, but I, I love this one story. When I go to visit... Um, they remember me. Um, it doesn't matter. I hope they remember me after the pandemic. I, I think they will, but I haven't been there for a while since we're not traveling. Um, but one of the on one of my occasions, I, I often bring them, you know, special treats to have um, different kinds of enrichment. And on one occasion, as I was leaving, um, Emma walked around her enclosure and gathered very various. Um, I'm going to call them flowers. They really weren't flowers, but she gathered a bouquet um, and, and handed it to me out of the enclosure as I was leaving. And it was one of the most moving things I had experienced. And it was really remarkable. And I was with the, the, one of the women who founded the sanctuary, who spent her life working with chimpanzees, um, both in labs and then in sanctuary, and had never seen anything like this before. Um, and it really suggested to me that there is something um, really profound about um, their recognition, Emma's recognition of the importance of our relationship, our personal relationship. Um, and I'll never forget that feeling. It was just a feeling of both um, wonder, but really I felt, I felt really seen and appreciated by Emma. And, and that was how it was at the very beginning of the relationship too. She saw me, she knew me, she saw, she thought she wanted to be close to me. I, I was afraid of her when I first met her, of course. 
Um, but um, anyway, it's a great story and uh, um, amazing experience. Um, so again, I guess it makes me think that, yes, we have relationships with other animals, but they also have relationships with us. They think about the relationships with us and um, that should also be in our minds. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's always absolutely wonderful when we are seen and especially also, I think this is true for you know, other, other animals, other species that, you know, like there's, there's something special about connecting with another animal. So thank you so much for, for sharing that. So thanks again, Laurie, so much for thank coming you. on this podcast. And uh, I look forward to our next conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. So that was the end of another wonderful podcast. There will be all kinds of links for you to explore the books, the writing, the philosophies and other aspects that were discussed in this podcast. And at Animal Concepts, we help you care for animals and for yourself to be at your best to achieve excellence in animal care and welfare and supporting you in other goals such as conservation, education and research. And the course platform is the first online platform combining human and animal well-being science and practice where you can get continued learning and personal development tools and resources so you and the animals can flourish. So if you feel inspired, follow the link in the podcast description today to become a member. 